This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Health IQ. Did you know that cyclists who ride a minimum of three hours a week have a 28% lower risk of all-cause mortality than non-cyclists? Shouldn't your life insurance premiums reflect that? Health IQ is an insurance company that helps health-conscious people like cyclists, runners, weightlifters, and vegetarians get lower rates on their life insurance. To see if you qualify, get your free quote today at healthiq.com mtb. Or mention the promo code MTB when you talk to a Health IQ agent today. Stay tuned for more information partway through this episode. You're listening to Frontlines, a podcast for the people that truly make mountain biking happen. Not the riders, racers, or product designers, but the builders, advocates, and the often forgotten board members of your local mountain bike trail association. We're going to dive into a discussion that was mentioned within months of this podcast launching. Now, it's taken so long to actually get to it because it's complicated. And one of the biggest challenges is no matter the facts, almost everybody, myself included, has a personal opinion on the topic. And as mountain bikers, many of us pride ourselves on overcoming challenges. Big rides provide big rewards. But whatever your personal preference is on e-bikes, we're going to try and focus on the facts as much as possible. And over the next four episodes, we're going to look at the increased production and promotion of e-bikes and what that means to our trails and trail associations and what we can do to respond. I'm your host, Brent Hillier, and this is episode 36 of Frontlines. Before we dive into the episode, I once again wanted to remind you about the Frontlines Book Club. It's a great way to support the show through Amazon's affiliate program. The latest recommendation comes from the New York Times bestseller and writer for The New Yorker, Malcolm Gladwell. Not only is Malcolm Gladwell a fellow Canadian, he and I actually share a hometown of Kitchener, Ontario, though I can't confirm if he's ridden the local single track. But perhaps the folks at the Waterloo Cycling Club can confirm that one way or the other. Malcolm Gladwell also creates one of my favorite podcasts right now, and I highly recommend it, Revisionist History. And as soon as I ran out of episodes, I began reading his books, many for the second time. Now, The Tipping Point is my second personal pick for the book club, but it wasn't something I picked up reading with the thought of it being related to mountain bike advocacy. A chapter in, though, I started to draw parallels as the book focuses on social pandemics and the types of people that spread them. I feel like mountain bike advocacy is at a tipping point. And right now is the perfect time to ensure that we create a culture shift, a pandemic of active and engaged volunteers who are looking to pick up a shovel and show up politically. So head over to frontlinesmtb.com, go to the book club page, and purchase The Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell and support the podcast at the same time. Now on with the show. My first guest is Court Rye. He's the founder of Electric Bike Review and a wealth of knowledge on all things related to e-bikes. Court is going to help us better understand just what we're referring to when we're talking about e-bikes. Hi, Court. Welcome to the show. Hey, Brent. How are you? Excellent. So thank you so much for taking the time here to, to chat with me. And, and before we kind of dive into the classifications of, of e-bikes, uh, could you just tell us what is the Electric Bike Review? Well, I used to ride my bike back and forth to work in Austin, Texas, and 
I was struggling towards the end of the week because I have some injuries from snowboarding and surfing, uh, but I really wanted to ride my bike, you know, and avoid just the congestion, the traffic that's there, be healthy, um, enjoy the community. And, and so I started looking online, like, uh, you know, what can I do? I didn't want to put like a chainsaw on the back of my bike because the, the noise, the uh, pollution and stuff. I'm, I think there are just some different rules about that too. Like I didn't want a moped. I didn't want to be riding in traffic. I wanted that bicycle experience. So I, I discovered electric bikes. This is around 2012. There really weren't a lot in the United States at that time, it, but it seemed like a thing that was catching on in Europe and Asia. So I went online to um, the Electric Bike Report website. Uh, Pete Priebus runs that here in the U.S., and he um, you know, got me excited. And I, I just clicked an ad, and I bought a bike. $2,000 later, I, I had one, and I was severely disappointed, actually. It was pretty heavy, kind of slow. I'm a lightweight guy, and I'm very active. So I just felt like there's potential here. I can feel it, but this isn't it. And that it, it just got my gears turning. So I built the website, electricbikereview.com. I actually had to buy the URL. Someone was kind of squatting that. And I, I poured myself into this sort of in the, the nights after work and on the weekends. And I snuck into Interbike um, that year, took some time off of work, and just kind of you know went and filmed stuff with my, my phone, my camera phone. Uh, not the best video quality, but it turned into this just great resource. And in the years since, I've created uh, some comparison tools and some guides talking about e-bike classes, safety, trail etiquette, all that stuff. Because I, I am, a, I'm a biker. You know, I road bike, I mountain bike. I've been doing it for years and years since I was a little kid. Um, you know, and I, and I wanted to help people find what would fit their lifestyle, their budget, um, and just, you know, create that resource, a really helpful resource. So that's, that's what electricbikereview.com is. So let's kind of dive into this classification system. You know, a lot of people, I think, get get uh, confused about what is the difference between an, an e-bike and and a moped or or a, or a motorcycle, for example. And so there's been kind of a, a four level classification scale that's that's been created. Um, what was the history of that? Like, when did it get created? Where did it get created? Yeah, great question. Uh, one that I don't have. A perfect answer for I think the class system in the United States evolved out of how it works in Europe. In Europe, my understanding is that a class one electric bike is uh, pedal assist only, which means you have to be pedaling for that motor to kick on. It can only go up to 25 kilometers per hour, which is roughly 15.5 miles per hour. Uh, they don't allow throttles in all places, but in some places they do. And that's, that's kind of this class two step where it's, again, 25 kilometers per hour, throttle operation is the only difference. And then there's this other class, class three, speed pedelec, which requires, it's kind of like in between uh, a regular bicycle where you don't need insurance or licensing or anything, and a moped where it's like, well, maybe that's easier to get than a full auto license. But it's, it's again, it's a step down from like a moped. And that those bikes can go up to um, 28 miles per hour. So Back to the United States, my understanding is that during the Bush senior era, they were kind of uh, like Lee Iacocca had built this bike, um, was excited about the technology. He's a famous automobile designer in the U.S., um, I think for General Motors. So it was like you've got this guy who's kind of visionary, and he's making sort of a personal project e-bike thing that looked a lot like a moped uh, with a big light and these big heavy batteries. 
in, in years more recently, we've had lithium-ion batteries, stuff that's a lot lighter. E-bikes have become more prevalent, but the, the legislation for what is an electric bike in the United States dates back to, again, Bush Sr., where they just said, well, hey, you know, anything under one horsepower, that's, that's just a bicycle, right? And one horsepower roughly equates to 750 watts. Okay, so in Europe, the watt rating is like up to 250 watts. And I think that's why we see so many electric bikes there with mid-drives, because they're trying to suck all the power and potential out of a relatively low wattage system. And you do that by leveraging the drivetrain, whether it's an internally geared hub or just a, a standard cassette. Okay, so it's really interesting, right? Like you've got Europe, low power, low speed. They're squeezing every ounce of that they can. And then the United States, it's like, whatever, 750 watts, like, no problem. And we, we allow a 20 mile per hour for class one or class two. And again, class one, pedal assist only, class two, throttle, class three, speed pedal. And here, speed pedal is kind of a gray area. You don't have to get any kind of licensing like you do in Europe. And I think a lot of the time you'll just see commuter bikes with that. You know, there, there really aren't very many mountain bikes or anything that, that have the throttles, that have this higher speed, um, although there are kind of dongles and things you can do to sort of unlock bikes, but then you're breaking the law. You know, it's kind of like, yeah, I have a Ferrari and I can speed with it. So that comes back to trail etiquette. Um, and, and I don't want to, I, I don't want to dodge any bullets here. Like, yeah, I, I understand as someone who's out there on a mountain bike, it, it can be a little bit upsetting if people aren't taking care of the trail, riding during muddy conditions, skidding out all over the place, riding off trail. But back to the speed question in these classes, Speed is a really interesting one because, you know, you can go a lot faster than 20 miles per hour when coasting down a hill. Um, so, you know, how does this change the uphill experience? And are people passing with care? Are they being thoughtful? It, the noise thing isn't such an issue. So to kind of focus in on on mountain bikes and that e-mountain bike, we're, we're really, when we're talking about allowing e-mountain bikes on certain trails, we're, we're really dealing with that class one pedal assist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then, you know, is there, um, I think the, the big thing that scares people out there is, is this throttle, right? And so we get into a throttle when we get into that class two and, and you already alluded to it there. Like there is this ability to essentially take a class one mountain bike and turn it into a, a class two bike. Is that something that's easy to do? Um, is, is it something that's obvious when people do it? Yeah, I would back up and say that it's rarely possible. There are kits that you can buy where you got a throttle you can plug in. Sure. But most of the time when we're talking about major companies like Bulls or High Bike or Trek or Specialized or Yamaha that recently entered the space, there's no, they, none of their bikes have throttles. And so there's nothing you can plug in. And these are really fancy bikes. Like the wires are all internally routed. The motors are compact. What they're really doing is bringing over their European offering. And they're sort of like flubbing the specs a little bit and being like, well, it's 350 watt motor. Like we upgraded the firmware, but it's the same hardware. And so you're effectively getting the European solution that's designed to be efficient, low power, and really no, no throttle option. The, the gray area here is where, you know, you get a kid or you get a, some other company that's maybe not as mainstream that's trying to be competitive by offering a throttle, by offering higher power, and then you take it out. You know, again, it's, it's sort of the Ferrari example where you have a, a really fancy car that maybe it was designed to be a race car, 
but you can buy that as a consumer. Or you buy a Humvee, you know, that's designed for the military, and you, you can drive it inappropriately, but the mainstream consumer of cars, and that, you know, analogy, none of them are designed for that kind of performance. And that's, again, that's really the case. If you see a bike that looks nice and it's like a full suspension electric mountain bike, it's not going to have a throttle. Fantastic. Well, how can, how can folks take a look at uh, your website and, and is there kind of a, a layout of, of these different classification systems on your website? Yes. Yes. Thank you for asking. That's one thing that early on as this started to emerge from, for me again, starting in 2012, 2013, 2014, 2015, those were the years where I was creating a reputation for myself and as, as being authentic and actually being a recognizable figure in the space. The CEO of uh, Curry Technologies, which does iZip, Raleigh, they used to do eZip, and they kind of deprecated that, and they also have High Bike. They invited me out, you know, come, come to their headquarters, and the CEO, Larry Peasy, had a conversation with me about classes, kind of educated me, and then I wrote an article based on that experience and had him edit it and just kind of proofread it. So that's on the site, you know, electricbikerview.com. There's this guide section, and... Uh, one of the guides is, you know, e-bike classes. What are they? Why do they matter? At that time, I went back for the hundreds of reviews I'd already done, and I updated them and, and added this class tag. So you can actually come to the site, uh, the homepage. There's like a search engine on the right if you're on desktop, and and there's a drop down, and you can actually select, um, you know, what type of class this is, uh, and, and give yourself some some better results of like, okay, what are the bikes that I could select from given my intended use. Well, Court, thanks so much for for taking the time to chat with me. I, I really appreciate it. Absolutely. This is a pleasure. Once again, this episode of the podcast is sponsored by Health IQ. Health IQ saves its customers up to 33% because physically active people have a 56% lower risk of heart disease, 20% lower risk of cancer, and a 58% lower risk of diabetes compared to people who are inactive. If approved, Health IQ will use information like race and event registrations and your ride log information from websites like Strava, Trailforks, or MapMyRide to secure you with a better rate on life insurance. Just like a clean driving record will get you lower car insurance, Health IQ helps those living an active, healthy lifestyle pay less for life insurance. And Health IQ doesn't just generate leads and forward you to an insurer. They walk you through the entire journey, from answering any initial questions to starting an application, going through underwriting, all the way to when your policy is signed and official. Learn more and get a free quote at HealthIQMTB or mention the promo code MTB when you talk to a Health IQ agent today. Now, my next guest is Drew Engelman. He's the sales and marketing manager at Yamaha Bicycles. Yes, you heard that correctly, Yamaha Bicycles. Hi, Drew. Welcome to the show. Hi, Brent. How are you? Good. Thanks for joining me today. Uh, really excited to. Uh, uh, and uh, for the record, congratulations on the anniversary. I'm, I'm a, a recent subscriber, but really excited to have learned about it. And uh, I can't tell you how much 
I personally appreciate all the work you're doing already. Thanks very much. Well, thank you, Drew. I appreciate that. Before I dive into uh, kind of Yamaha bicycles and, and we hear about the bike and, and what Yamaha bicycles is doing, I, I want to just touch on on something else first. You you've actually founded uh, a trail stewardship group, and so uh, where is that, and 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 what uh, what do they um, what are they involved with? Yeah, uh, so the name of the group is the Trail Stewards of San Diego, and believe it or not, it's located in San Diego, California. Uh, we, as with many really cool, fun projects, we began with uh, a napkin and a bar after a mountain bike ride. And so what we have kind of thought of ourselves as is, well, over that conversation, we thought about the upcoming trail event or trail work event that was on our schedule with San Diego Mountain Biking Association and our mountain bike group which would comprise, depending upon the week, between 25 and 45 people, uh, only a few of us could participate. Um, one, because of the, the day of the week that it fell on, and two, because of the number of hours that you know you really want to dedicate to those as an individual. And nobody likes to be the first guy leaving uh, the trail work day. You always feel like you're a bit of a goon when uh, everybody else is putting in a full work day and you're just putting in a couple of hours. So... Uh, rather than just avoiding the the trail work days, we worked at the time with uh, San Diego Mountain Bike Association and a few land managers to uh, figure out ways that we could do smaller projects. And it kind of developed into what the trail storage is now, where we have at any one time eight spearhead uh, or spearheaded uh, liaisons, where they're tasked with specific small projects and they work to incentivize other people in their community to join them and do just a couple of hours here and there, whether it be a weekday or weekend. And it's not, not necessarily a new uh, idea. Uh, we, we all as, as riders give back when we can and, and, and ways that we can, but uh, we've, we've taken a little bit further and we've gone out beyond our natural boundaries of our mountain bike community. And we also work with equestrian groups, running groups, hikers, uh, walkers and you know even the ultra runners, which is uh, a very very fast growing community in in San Diego at least. And uh, we challenge them and champion them to join us in those events. And uh, we've had a lot of successes with it. So we're really excited to see that we're reaching maybe people that would potentially be part of a user conflict uh, situation. And now they're actually better relationships as a result of kind of working together hand in hand, shovel you know with shovel. Awesome. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, what Yamaha has been been working on. How long has uh, an e-bike kind of been in the works at Yamaha? Well, so to kind of take a step back, I guess first thing would probably be to say that Yamaha was the uh, was credited with the world's first technology in e-bikes back in '93. So since the onset of uh, uh, e-bikes in the world, Yamaha has been the pioneer and. While there's probably some debate whether or not, you know, a, a large scale or small scale person kind of did it on their own in their garage, 1987 is about as far back as we can go with drawings and sketches and then patents, you know, started around 89. So uh, we started out with a system called the PASS or the Power Assist System, uh, which was designed to kind of create a, a user friendly and environmentally friendly bicycle at the time. And uh, it was for getting up hills and to avoid kind of the crummy parts of, of riding in a large metropolis like Tokyo or other parts in Japan where it first started. In a lot of ways, uh, Yamaha is the reason why we're having this conversation uh, in, in the U.S. And, and uh, the group here in the, the U.S. offices has been trying to get our 
our product line brought into market for really the past seven years or so. And we wanted to do it. We wanted to launch a brand one in a way that was uh, thought through and meaningful to our retail partners, but also in a way that was specific to the U.S. market rather than just taking a product that was designed for Japan and uh, bringing it over in a box. As the uh, regulations for e-bikes in Japan are significantly different than they are here in the States. And so was the, the e-mountain bike kind of always on the, the, the burner, if you will, as, as being uh, one of those things to include within the lineup? Not necessarily, no. Uh, the largest number of, of bikes and e-bike categories being sold and purchased for consumers is for the city streets and urban um, uh, access. So people are using these to get around for commuting, for replacing cars or replacing any sort of other kind of activity that would require you know, transport. So it's a really kind of utilitarian, uh, lightweight option for some people in lieu of a car. Mountain bikes really have uh, kind of picked up in this category just over the past probably seven or nine years, and uh, largely so in the past just two or three years as more of the you know top five brands in the conventional bike world have uh, started to embrace it themselves. Their retailers are starting to embrace it as well, therefore their community and so on and so forth. One of the things that I, I pride myself on with, with this show is, is I, I don't really spend a lot of time or, or I, I try not to spend any time talking about the actual mountain bike itself. You know, I think the, the, the market of, of discussing bikes is pretty saturated, but I'm going to make a bit of an exception for, for this episode. And so I want to know a little bit about this, this mountain bike. I know, uh, so it's a, it's a hardtail e-bike. Is it available right now? You know, where is this, if it's not, you know, where can it uh, be purchased and you know, what's, what's kind of the specs on on it and and is there a rough price point i think is uh, is what a lot of people are wondering right now yeah i get that question on a daily for sure uh at this time we are not finalized with the spec so everything that we all saw at uh, interbike was truly a prototype format so geometry wasn't locked in even the metallurgy that we were using wasn't uh, wasn't locked in or with specs on the components uh we hope to have the the bike in the late spring here in the u.s and It'll be available through electric bike specialty retailers and independent bike shops as well. The price point that we're kind of targeting is in alignment with uh, our other uh, partner brands in addition to our other kind of competing brands uh, that are already in the market. So we won't be setting the world on fire with a $1,000 hardtail by any means. And, and that's sometimes what some people are anticipating because they, they, uh, they want the, the scale of Yamaha powers, power uh, sports products to fall in line with uh, – uh, the bicycle category, and that uh, as as uh, an industry, uh, we we know that, that probably just wouldn't be feasible. So, we're seeing bike manufacturers add motors to to bicycles, but now we're seeing a, a motorized company build a bike uh, around a motor. And I think for a lot of people, it's it's a little bit unsettling. You know, for the the most part, the cycling industry considers a, an e bike to be a bicycle. But many advocates that I've spoken with disagree on that. And, and so as a motorized company, what's Yamaha's opinion? Are e-bikes a motorized vehicle? No, uh, definitely not. Uh, well, let me, let me describe what I mean better. Um, in the U.S. and other English-speaking countries, uh, I know the term motorcycle will likely continue to be. They're not motorized vehicles. The federal government recognizes the Class 1 bicycles as bicycles. And personally, as a, as a trail builder myself, uh, I'd also add that I found that class one bicycles really put no greater threat to the trails of the people on them than any other conventional biker or conventional bike rider. And, um, yeah, I, I don't, I don't see it as a motorized vehicle. And 
one of the reasons why I personally am super excited about Yamaha coming to the States finally uh, is that when Yamaha created e-bikes, it was done so in an effort to create a commute solution that was uh, even in our company um, description for when we first launched this a long time ago was that it was intended to be both user-friendly but also environmentally friendly. And over the last 25 years, all the impact studies that either Yamaha or others have conducted, they continue to show that the Class 1 e-bikes really fall in alignment with conventional bikes and that are already allowed on trails today. So as Yamaha enters the, the mountain bike world, what kind of support can we see uh, from Yamaha on that advocacy front or, or even beyond? Yeah, uh, so currently Yamaha works with uh, the Tread Lightly campaign, uh, U.S. Forest Service, and peopleforbikes.org. But we hope to grow our network of trail associations and bike coalitions that we support, um, but we're still learning where they are. So we, we're really looking to hear from them. Uh, in the months to come and the years to come to figure out how we can help them in the local areas where, where our riders live. We also work with other companies within the cycling industry to um, set the highest possible test standards for safety, for the rider, the environment. We work with battery recycling facilities to manage the, the future disposal of our batteries. And uh, even the director of our group here at Yamaha uh, is on the e-bike committee for the BPSA, which is uh, the Bicycle Product Suppliers Association. And on that committee, um, they've also created training portals for retailers uh, to learn more about e-bikes and their technology uh, to better educate the end consumer about the functionality and also where to find information on trail access and how they can best help kind of give back as an individual if they're looking for that. Um, but, uh, yeah, there's there's no question these bikes are, are remaining are, excuse me, are really kind of reminding um, to be on the forefront and, and reminding cyclists to, or non-cyclists to uh, discover the fun aspects of being on a bike again. So yeah, it does kind of fall back on us as riders to, to teach each other what the rules of the trails are, because as with any trail, it really comes down to the end user and there's knuckleheads in every group, uh, whether you're an equestrian rider or equestrian uh, um, or a runner or a hiker, we've all got that buddy that, kids too much when they ride or the running buddies that cut the corners and the switchbacks to save time. But we've really got to work together to educate any new trail user, no matter where they come from or what they're doing when they're there. Mm. Yeah. And that kind of touches on a, a great point there that, uh, that rider style, um, almost has more impact than, than anything else. Has, has Yamaha done any studies on, on the impacts of a class one e-bike, uh, on trails? We haven't done them in the States. We've supported a few people that have um, started sharing with us what their studies are intended to learn, but we're really nervous about participating in, you know, donating to those because we don't want to steer any of the studies in one direction. In Japan, we've done impact studies. Um, as a company, we don't publicize those, but uh, I can say that um, as a as a person that just joined into Yamaha a little more or a little less than a year ago, uh, those were things I looked forward to learning about when I first came on, and I, I was happy to see what I did learn as an employee. So I, I know you don't speak for the entire cycling industry, obviously, but, but why are e-bikes being pushed so heavily by the cycling industry and, and now essentially by the, the motorized sector with, with Yamaha kind of entering this market? I think for, for a lot of brands, uh, it comes down to uh, providing 
the retailer with the product that uh, will give them the biggest audience to um, to invite to their stores. So uh, whether it be a fixie community or a, a high-end road community, uh, the the manufacturers are really responding to um, the retailers and saying, hey, bring me something new, bring me something special, bring me something that's going to bring people into the stores. And right now, people are becoming uh, uh, largely aware of e-bikes in the U.S., and that is what the retailers are asking the manufacturers to produce. Now, some are doing it on their own and uh, bringing it in, um, maybe uh, with the anticipation of those customers being in markets, and, and that's where I see the, the wider offering uh, of manufacturers coming into it. I think a lot of mountain bike trail associations and, and trail associations in general are are a little confused or, or maybe a little bit concerned. And you know, is the expectation by e-bike manufacturers for uh, trail advocacy groups, mountain bike trail adv- advocacy groups, to be advocating for e-bike access? Are these kind of being plopped onto advocacy groups? Is like, hey, here's here's something else for you to advocate for. Well, I don't believe that uh, the e-bike manufacturers are expecting uh, the trail associations to uh, to do any one thing. Uh, we work with them uh, both in in our personal interactions with them, but also uh, I think that the large majority of them that are out there really just appreciate the help. And and e-bike manufacturers are very active in, in looking in ways we can help. I don't know that there are specific advocacy groups out there for e-bikes as championing, you know, for just that singular category. But I also know that in my own riding group, the the people that own the e-bikes, it's not their only bike, and they are members of the mountain biking association in our community. Um, and they may not, our mountain biking community doesn't necessarily take a stance on e-bikes as a specific category, um, but, uh, but that doesn't mean that the people are giving back any less as a result of that. A couple of the conversations I've had with other editors uh, from magazines uh, that are absolutely against the e-bike access and they they're very very fearful that this is going to be an extremely big challenge for them for uh, trail conflict is the word they use and and um you know getting kicked off of trails things like that i ask in response to one of them if one of your friends were to buy a mountain bike would you take them out would you go with them would you you know someone that was brand new to mountain biking would you just let them go and her answer was no, of course not. I'd show them the ropes. I'd take them to do this. I'd take them to that. I'd show her what to get, you know, make sure that she's got everything she needs. Probably recommend a skills class, that type of thing. And my, my response to that, that type of uh, comment is, well, why would you do that for someone that bought an e-bike if they're your friend? You know, I think as a, as a trail steward, regardless of, you know, your ability to uh, volunteer to do trail work on the, on the actual network itself, it goes beyond that. You know, it's, it's our responsibility to teach others how to use the trail most effectively and how to do it most safely, what the yield rules, you know, really are. All mountain bikers are responsible for teaching other trail users and, or at least being stewards of the trail to uh, invite people to learn more, I guess. Would you, would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we have that, uh, that responsibility as, as, uh, you know, responsible trail users and, and whether we're, we're trail builders or, or just, 
you know, folks that are conscious of, of uh, what's happening on the trails. And that includes people, right? And I, I think that's a, 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 an extremely valid point that, um, that we're not just opening the, the barn doors and a herd of, of e-bikers are being unleashed onto the mountains that, that these right. are just new riders. And, and just like any new rider, they, they will go through the same education process and, and we can all be a part of that. Yeah, I think that the way that I describe it to the, the liaisons that we have for the trail store group is, is ownership versus responsibility. And right now, usually whenever uh, someone joins the trail store group, there's a, a sense of ownership of the trails. You know, we have we, we, we treat it as if it's our own, right? And, and we kind of protect it a bit. We, we get really uh, motivated in seeing it, you know, being maintained and taken well care of. But I think really the, the more important uh, comment is that it's a responsibility to maintain the trails. We take ownership of the work we do, but we're responsible for the actual network itself. As inviting a new person into mountain biking or a new person into trail running, we have more ownership, I believe, in education than we do in responsibility of education. We have the responsibility of the trails, but the ownership of the work. And I think that those are two things that um, are really important to me and my group is uh, having, having people that are uh, advocates for the trails and take responsibility in that, but really take pride and ownership of teaching others uh, what trail access um, uh, challenges there are and trail sustainability challenges there are and how to be a part of that rather than just, you know, be someone that comes out and uses it and goes home. When a land manager or perhaps another trail user sees someone out on an e-bike, how are they able to to figure out, you know, is this a class one or is this something else? What type of e-bike it is? Yeah, that's, that's something we think about a lot here. Um, so the classes, um, you know, are what the Fed has created for us and the CPSC is uh, tasked with regulating in the low speed electric bicycle category. There's a separate category of out-of-class electric bikes, and I'll get that in a second. But, you know, just with any bicycle out there, when people buy new bikes, the first thing they want to do after they ride it is they try to find a way to make it lighter or stiffer or faster. And I can only imagine that that behavior is uh, it's going to continue to go on even for the power assist riders as well. And I've seen some hacks out there that, you know, a lot of people to or that they've created on, on social media and things. And. Uh, as a rider, it's pretty hard for me to watch. Um, so we've accomplished a few things for our upcoming product to hopefully eliminate those types of hacks, but also better identify uh, what people are looking at from the outside. And uh, with that, first, we're going to be labeling the bicycles as a class one on the frame. Uh, and while the government, they don't require us to do that this time, we're putting it on there because we feel that the class one uh, e-bikes belong in the same conversation regarding access and trail sustainability as conventional bikes. And it helps the land managers better identify uh, what they're looking at uh, from the outside and what the capabilities of that electric bicycle are. The, I guess to go into too, the second thing that we're doing is we're also changing the way that the sensors interface with one another. I can't really go into the specifics about that per se, but, or how we did it, but um, I can say that when a rider places a dongle or reconfigures the sensor feedback, uh, there's an override that occurs that the engineers just can't account for. And uh, the timing of that power assist changes really significantly. And that means that people are likely to get an improper or they're likely to be in an improper gear or they're placing a lot of undue stress on the drivetrain and it will quickly wear out the cassette and the chain and even potentially bend a chain ring or spider. So, um, 
we will be educating our retail partners about those risks and requiring them to relay that information to the end user. And that way, the writing community uh, has a better opportunity for not only a, a good write experience, but also that the land managers can better account for the capabilities that the e-bikes are looking at. How can trail associations kind of stay uh, engaged and, and stay informed about this, you know, with the, the process about when these are going to kind of officially roll out, what they're, they're going to finally look like from Yamaha? Uh, how can they get in touch? The YamahaBicycles.com website is the place where you're going to find uh, spec information, pricing, um, uh, detailed data of the products. Uh, as far as the advocacy and how to be involved in part of the community, that's going to be largely uh, through our YouTube channel and our Facebook uh, page, where we'll be uh, sharing our expo uh, calendar, our demo calendar, or our factory demo tours, uh, where we're going to be at, whether it be at um, CES or the LA Auto Show or uh, at Interbike or even at Sea Otter. Uh, that's where you're going to be able to interact with us in person. And uh, we really look forward to meeting people there because uh, those events are super fun. And we learn a lot from the consumers and the people that are really in love with the product. And some people that, again, still have yet to find their appreciation for it or if they uh, have found a need for it themselves. Well, I'll definitely include those links in the, the show notes. And uh, and I just want to say thank you for, for taking the time to, to chat with me. I, I really appreciate it. Brent, thanks so much. And uh, I love this cast. Thanks for... Uh, <laughs> Uh, joining all of us together in just those 30 or 40 minutes of time when we're in the car uh, and uh, gives us time to remind ourselves of um, giving back and, and figuring out ways to get together as a community. Like everything, the bottom line means so much. And we're seeing e-mountain bikes hit the market because, as Drew mentioned, this gets more people on bikes. And as trail advocates, we shouldn't be afraid of that. The more riders we have, the bigger our voice and the more volunteers we can recruit. Drew made a great point that I think should be highlighted. If you knew someone who was just getting into mountain biking, would you let them go off on their own and figure out the sport for themselves? Why wouldn't we do the same for someone just getting into the sport on an e-bike? We should be welcoming those folks into the community, showing them the trails and guiding them through the do's and don'ts on trail use. And once again, the theme that continues to string together almost every episode of this podcast is this. When it comes to trails, it's not about ownership. It's about responsibility. And it's our responsibility to educate others. And when new people enter this world, it gives us a chance to not only show them the riding community, but also the advocacy and trail stewardship community as well. I've included a few links in the show notes, and I highly recommend having a look at them. The first two links are those guides mentioned by Court Ray of the Electric Bike Review. You'll also see some links to Yamaha Bicycles, and below that is a link to the People for Bikes e-bike guide for land managers. Lots of great info that I definitely suggest scrolling through. In the show notes, you'll also find links to support the show via PayPal. This show depends on donations from listeners like you. And you'll also find a link to the Frontlines Book Club. The latest book is The Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell. Next episode, we'll be keeping the e-bike discussion going. And if you have something you want to contribute to the conversation, send me an email or audio file at frontlinesmtb at gmail.com. You have until March 13th to be included in the next episode. 
In addition to a number of voices, I will also have two guests, Will Nichols, host of the Angry Mountain Biker podcast, another fantastic mountain bike podcast that's out there. And second is Christian Jackson, volunteer manager for the Boone Area Cyclist in Boone, North Carolina. I'm going to sit down with Christian and discuss a pilot study that he did on the perceptions of e-mountain bikes within his region. Like always, you can find the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at FrontlinesMTB. You can also stream the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and YouTube. And if you haven't already, leave the show a review on wherever you get it from. It helps others find the show. Music, as always, is by Lee Rosevear. Production notes by Jennifer Pride. Artwork is created by Brandon Gallagher-Watson and BGW Creative. And finally, I'm Brent Hillier. This is Frontlines. Thanks for listening, and happy trails.